From VT Digger, I'm Mike Dougherty. This is The Deeper Dig. This week, connecting Vermont's most rural homes to high-speed internet has been a challenge for decades. But the incoming executive director of the state's new broadband board hopes to finish the job within seven years. Last year, when COVID-19 forced companies and schools to go virtual, Vermonters without high-speed internet were left to scramble. Teachers and workers would often crowd around public libraries and municipal buildings, sitting in their cars, hoping to catch some free public Wi-Fi. But later in the year, federal COVID relief programs provided a windfall for broadband infrastructure, and lawmakers in Vermont worked quickly to pass a bill that would chart a path forward. Part of that bill involved the creation of a new body, the Vermont Community Broadband Board. Vermont has received a a significant amount of ARPA funds to the tune of $250 million dollars towards getting broadband to every Vermonter. So the main function of this board is really to allocate the grants. And I would say the highest level goal is to really get every Vermonter connected to fiber optic cable in the long run. In the short run, it's to get every Vermonter somehow connected to broadband. Last week, Governor Phil Scott appointed Christine Hallquist as the executive director of the Community Broadband Board. Scott and Hallquist were once political rivals, Hallquist challenged Scott in the 2018 governor's race and lost. But Scott said he couldn't think of a better person to lead the new broadband board. Before she ran for governor, Hallquist spent 12 years as the CEO of the Vermont Electric Co-op. When she ran, she made broadband connectivity a centerpiece of her campaign. We connect every home and business with fiber. We're going to have entrepreneurial businesses coming to Vermont who want to be here. I've talked to many of those businesses who say, I can't locate in rural Vermont. Two-thirds of Vermont is rural. Two-thirds of Vermont are listed in rural Vermont. And they can't get connected. You cannot run a business today if you can't get connected. And our copper infrastructure is wholly inadequate to achieve the goals we need to achieve. So Now, Hallquist and this board have a monumental task ahead to try to close the digital divide in Vermont. Can you give me a sense of the scope of the digital divide here in Vermont? I mean, how many households really are we talking about? Well, I can say with about 80% confidence what the numbers are. But the problem we have is that, you know, to get down to every site-specific connection point, it's uh, the numbers are probably higher than what I'm going to give you. Hmm. So right now, the official number is 51,000 households don't have access. But we believe that those that do have access, there's a large number. For example, I'm sitting out here in Wilcott, and I'm talking to you with a, um, a Starlink satellite bonded to a DSL, which most Vermonters don't have that technical uh, capacity as well as the financial capacity to be able to do those things. But if I were to try to do this call with either one of those, the DSL, which is poor where I'm located, or the Starlink satellite, we wouldn't be doing this right now. I would have to go somewhere else. Hmm. So a, a lot of people are in a situation in rural Vermont that I am in, which is they might be officially identified as having some level of service, but yet it's not adequate for doing day-to-day business. One of the things that I'm always struck by in these conversations about broadband is that it seems like there has often been a certain level of consensus among the leadership in the state that that something has to be done with this, that more of these households need to be connected. And the refrain was always kind of just that the money wasn't there. And I, I know that now you said you've got this $250 million to spend. How do you go about deciding how to spend it? 
Well, I, I think the decided decision to spend really that's going to that's going to fall within the uh, communication union districts as well as the Vermont Community Broadband Board. However, you're stuck with laws of physics here, which kind of make the decisions a little easier. It depoliticizes the decision. What do you mean? What I mean is, if everything were equal and we didn't have to deal with laws of physics, then we'd have to make these decisions based on you know collective opinions and those kind of things. But the reality is you have to start at a certain point and lay a fiber backbone to get people connected. And that point you start with is where fiber exists today. So when you build that network, you're going to build along that network path. So the the physics really will define, will, will be a large point, a large contributor into the decision as the physics of how this gets laid out. It's a network design. So the first money we will spend will be on what's called a detailed design, which really says, how are we going to get to every single household in Vermont? Most of the communication union districts, including the two that I am now presently the administrator of, NEK Broadband and Memorial Fiber, we've already done high-level designs. We know the routes. We know the routes, but that doesn't tell us what technology is needed and what the costs are. Hmm. The next level of work is called detailed design, and that will define for us what the build-out will be. Got it. And that's where you start to figure out exactly how much this is going to cost in, in any given region. I think we've got some pretty good ideas at this point. You know, for example, that if you look at the Vermont telecommunications plan, it talks about cost of somewhere between 350 to 500 million. I think the total build out for Vermont is probably somewhere in that 400, $500 million range. And I say that because NEK, which is the most challenging part of the state for 3000 miles of fiber, you know, will, will cost approximately 132 million. And if you and we have 25% of the underserved and unserved addresses. So if you extrapolate that out, it does come out to more than 500 million, but the rest of the state isn't going to have to build the kind of mileage. We have some of the lowest densities in the state. So I'm pretty confident that we're going to be somewhere, you know, in the 400 million range. And the good news is we have 250 million in grant funding or some of that money won't go directly to construction, but let's say 200 million goes to construction. Well, now what you've done is you've now used grant money to fund those areas that don't pay back so that you can build a business model. So the concept being you take the grant money, you construct the network you can with that grant money, you start collecting revenues on that grant money, you can borrow you know, some percentage against that grant to go to your next phase and then go to the bond market. So I'm confident, you know, with all the years and years, believe me, I've started working on this back in 2003 as a Vermont electric co-op. It's an incredible challenge, but we do have the funds now that I believe can make this happen. You know, it's kind of funny. Many people talk about, oh, you know, on this, the cynical folks say, oh yeah, four governors have tried to attack this and they were not successful. Well, that's because it's a really hard problem. You just don't give up, right? You know, I certainly haven't given up. And I know that, you know, our current governor hasn't given up. But I do think we're in a place now where done correctly, we can actually achieve this goal. Well, that is something I wanted to ask about. This has been a topic of conversation, like you said, for four administrations now. How big of a change is what we're seeing this year from what came out of the legislature and this new funding that's available? How different is this from, from efforts that have been made in the past? Well, there's two things that I think has happened. Some of us have been working on this a long time, 
you know, in fact, in my 2018 campaign, I said, basically, if Vermont's economy wants to thrive, we've got to get connected. And of course, I don't think Governor Scott and I disagreed on that in the campaign. We both agree that getting connected is critical. But what's really motivated this has been the COVID crisis. You know, the COVID crisis brought this to a real head. When we've got 20% of our students that were completely absent from school because they couldn't get connected, this really drove the issue home and made it a priority. It made it a priority at the federal level. That's why these funds were allocated. It's not just our state that was viewing these problems. This problem's happening all across the country and it's nonpartisan. It was happening in the deep red states as well as the deep blue states. So this is one thing that you know was a unifier at all levels in government. And what you're saying is that this money that we've received as a result in some ways of the COVID crisis, even though this effort is going to take more like 500 million, that that, that initial money, it, it almost becomes like seed money that once we build this system, it, it can be more self-sustaining so that we're not risking using up this windfall and then being left with expenses that we can't pay down the line. That's correct. And just to give you some numbers, some pe- time people kind of badmouth the, the private telecommunication companies because they don't come out to the rural areas. But the reality is, once you get below 20 houses per mile, you actually start to lose money if you have to fund it through you know, through a for-profit company. You've got to pay your profit margins. You've got to do all these other things. Now, not-for-profit might be able to drive that down to 15 houses per mile, but below a certain number, you lose money and you can't build a business on losing money. So the idea that you can put this influx of grant money to, to build the network, that cuts your expense on the financing side so that you can now hit every address. I want to ask you about how communications union districts or CUDs fit in here. I've been reading about rural broadband in Vermont for years now, and I feel like I still only have like a 50% understanding of what a CUD actually is, how it works, and how it solves that problem that you're talking about. I wonder if you could give me sort of CUDs 101. How does this work in layman's terms to where the numbers actually add up here? You know, I'm going to go harken back to the 30s and use the electrical grid as an example. Okay. In the 1930s, rural America didn't have electricity. And there was no way the power companies were to come to rural America because it was a losing proposition. Actually, 56% of America's landmass didn't have electricity. And so what happened is a very similar model was developed called the Rural Electrical Administration, where they, they did all volunteer boards came together to figure out how to get electricity to every milking parlor at the time that the home became the afterthought. And ultimately, that's how electricity is brought about. And oh, by the way, the government provided an influx of capital spending in order to make that happen. So through the power of volunteerism and through the power of the passionate commitment of those rural Americans, we got every single home connected to electricity that wanted it. Hmm. Although we haven't done that at the federal level, we've done that at the local level by creating these municipal districts called communication union districts, similar to our water and sewer districts, where a collective group of towns comes together and gets the homes connected. And we now have this influx of grant money. So this is really very much like the original rural electrification model. When we come back, 
why Hallquist believes the broadband build-out is about more than just technology. Just a quick message from our underwriters. Community Health is Vermont's largest federally qualified health center. Affordable, accessible, quality primary health care at Community Health includes dental, pediatric, behavioral health, and pharmacy services. With practices in Rutland, Paulette, Shoreham, Brandon, and Castleton. New patients are always welcome. And centers are open seven days a week at Express Care in Rutland and Castleton. Community Health accepts Medicaid and offers sliding scale fees, making health care accessible to everyone. Community Health. Your health is our mission. We're also sponsored this week by a new podcast, Bold Ideas from Vermont. A global pandemic has forced us to rethink almost every aspect of our lives. So where should we look for inspiration? On his new podcast, Bold Ideas from Vermont, host David Roth thinks the solutions are closer to home than you might think. Along with co-host Meg Polite and special guests, David discusses the bold ideas grounded in Vermont know-how that can help us not only survive, but thrive. Listen and subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. Go to boldideaspod.com. That's boldideaspod.com. So how will it work for people who live in a CUD once you start implementing some of the programs that you are looking to implement? What's it actually going to look like for your average person in that district? You know, are they just waiting for the day when someone knocks on their door and says, hey, we're running the cable. Here's how you sign up. What's it actually going to be like for the customer? Well, I think you've just described it in kind of elegant simplicity. <laughs> it, is, it is going to be, hey, you now have can get connected. Do you want to get connected? And we build our business models, assuming that a large number of people will want to get connected, which we know they will. The average homeowner really doesn't have much to do because this is this, you know, this required skilled labor to put it all together and make it happen. Now, when I get to my job at the at the Vermont Community Broadband Board, we'll look at interim solutions because it's going to take a while, five to seven years to get that last address connected. But there are interim solutions that can be done at the local level. And hopefully, you know, depending on what my board says, you know, I would I would like to see some turnkey solutions that local communities could implement on the interim, which would involve fixed wireless or you know radio frequency. When you talk about radio frequency, is that something similar to like what you said you're using now, like a Starlink hookup yeah. to a satellite yes. connection? Okay. Yeah. And Starlink, for example, you know, it's pretty funny on my last call. I've you know got the technology where I can watch when Starlink fades and the other one comes in. Hmm. So I've got these backup systems. Well, you know, I have a 111 failovers on my call. That's really the star my system failing over to the DSL. So literally trying to have communications like this in Starlink can't just can't happen, you know. And even Elon Musk has recognized that. Elon Musk in his last interview said, you know, this is a solution for about 3% of the world, hmm. you know, which really is not a solution for Vermont. And maybe Starlink is an interim solution for some of our rural outposts, but it's it's certainly not the long-term solution that we're going to do business on. Got it. So as this happens with the various CUDs, do the CUDs then sort of act effectively like an internet company, or are there partnerships with existing ISPs that are going to kind of help 
these build outs happen and these people get connected? What are the actual mechanics of that? It's intended to be a public-private partnership. It doesn't mean that the CUD cannot, doesn't go into the ISP business. An ISP is really your end provider, internet service provider. That's what we call the consolidated to the world or the kingdom fibers. But I believe, and this is really just a, a projection, not a fact, that most will come up with a solution of a public-private partnership. And that's exactly what NEK Broadband and Lamoille Fibernet are doing. The idea being... We would partner with an existing provider. The difference would be we would have strings attached to those relationships. And the strings would be, you know, we want low cost of entry. We want to be able to have affordable bandwidth for people who are struggling. You know, we want you to meet certain standards called resiliency and redundancy in the network design. And all these things. The nice thing about a locally controlled communication union districts is we can dictate the quality of service and the cost of service. You mentioned the physics of this being one of the the primary challenges. We're talking about addresses that are far apart and the actual stringing of cables. I wonder, are there other major challenges beyond that that you are looking ahead to moving forward with the CUD model? What other issues do you see down the line that we're going to have to work through as a state? There's two issues that are right in the forefront, and that's material and labor shortages. Hmm. And the reason those material shortages exist is because this is happening all across the country. You know, all of a sudden we got this surge in demand, which, you know, coming out of COVID, we're seeing that happen everywhere, right? You know, you're seeing all the prices are going up because the demand is there and our manufacturing supply hasn't been what it was because people were in crisis. So that goes into this plus increased demand. But the labor part is something that, again, when when I get to the VCBB, we're going to address that issue because labor shortages that needs government intervention. That needs the help, you know, working with the Vermont technical colleges and the local technical schools to, to be able to get, really provide good employment for folks. And uh, there's a good model for that. Kentucky has done that, Kentucky Wired. It turns out Kentucky's doing 3,000 miles of fiber, statewide fiber. They're into year three, they're on budget. And uh, 57% of the people working on the network have been trained and they're in-state uh, residents. And so you're hoping to somewhat replicate that here in Vermont, but we need yes. we need people to actually put these wires up. Yeah, to do the work. And it's great employment and a good future. So, you know, it gives people a chance to move up from their the current jobs they have. I am curious, as you look towards the years ahead, you said five to seven years, maybe as a timeline to really move towards universal connectivity. What happens if the economics of this shift in some way that makes it so that we are not seeing the same returns that, that you were expecting and that all of a sudden we're, you know, we, we've started this project because of this windfall, but we're having trouble sort of filling in the, the revenue to pay for the next stage. What would happen in that case? Well, if it happens to us, it's going to happen to everybody because we're going to be the lowest cost provider. You know, we're a not-for-profit. It goes similar to the electric cooperatives. You know, electric cooperatives have been, there's about a thousand electric cooperatives in the United States. They're all in place today. They adjust their rates according to costs. Our costs will always be the lowest because we're, we're not-for-profits. So it's, it's not going to be the end of the world. It'll be an adjustment in rates. At the end of the day, if you look at the physics of fiber, there's nothing that's going to outperform it, just like the electrical wires. You know, we're using the same electrical wires 
that we had in the 1900s. Hmm. All of the technology surrounded it changes, but fiber is very much like the electrical wire. So there's nothing that's going to outperform fiber. And I can say that with a high level of confidence. And you can you can ask all the greatest physicists in the world to tell you the same thing. And I'm not a great physicist. But I start <laughs> by telling you that. <laughs> You're saying that that'll position us in such a way that these CUDs and, and these networks that are going to be set up through this are going to be competitive no matter what. Yeah, no matter what, right? Yeah. Gotcha. I wonder if you could help me sort of paint a picture of really what the long-term future looks like here. I mean, you said five to seven years to get this built out. If you look ahead 10 years to when we really do have universal broadband in Vermont, what looks different? How is Vermont a different state with, with universal connectivity at that point? You know, that's what you just asked is the most important question we should ask. And that's, you know, when, when I've been talking to potential V board members, that's what I say. This is not a technology implementation. This is a social change for Vermont. And we're building a 40-year network. You know, we have to think 40 years out. What's Vermont going to be like? If you look at potential climate migration, and we even saw this in the COVID issues, those areas that are rural today may not be rural tomorrow. Hmm. We're going to be struggling with tremendous social changes. You know, my job is to implement the network, but it's our job to think about what do we want Vermont to look like? When I say our job, it's the legislature, it's everyone's job to say, okay, we're going to have these fiber networks, but what does that mean for the social changes that might occur here in Vermont? So I think we can all pull together in Vermont to make it a better future. It's not the technology. It's, it's what the technology does for us. Well, Christine, thank you so much for jumping on it. I really appreciate the rundown here. Yep, you're welcome. You can read more about rural broadband in Vermont at vtdigger.org. You're listening to The Deeper Dig, a weekly podcast from the VT Digger newsroom. Search for it and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and you'll get new episodes as soon as they land. We use music this week by Blue Dot Sessions. We'll be back next week with more stories from the Digger Newsroom. See you then.